Amen. What are you doing here? What are you doing here? You ever find yourself asking that question? You get to a point in your life and you wonder, what am I doing here? You look up and you have no idea how you even got to where you are. You wonder, how am I here and what in the world am I doing here? God, what are you doing? You find yourself at the end of your rope. You find yourself doubting. You find yourself possessed by fear. You feel like you're alone, like no one else could possibly understand what you're going through. You feel like you're in despair, maybe even depressed. Maybe you even go to bed thinking, Lord, if I don't wake up tomorrow, that'd be just fine with me. I want you to know that you're not alone. You're not alone. We've been going through uh, Hebrews 11 this whole year, and we've been looking at these people who are mighty in their faith. And there's this lie out there that if, if I just have enough faith, my, my life will be great. Things will, will go well for me, and I won't have any problems. And let me tell you that that, that lie stands in direct contrast to what the Word of God says. And we're going to see that example this morning. That even people of great faith from time to time struggle, and they face trials. In fact, the, the verses that... Stephen just read not long ago from 1 Peter, the very next verse says, You rejoice in their salvation, though now for a short time you've had to struggle in various trials. And I want to I draw our attention to Hebrews 11. And we're going to look, we've been kind of wrapping up this series with the end of Hebrews 11. And starting in verse 32, it says, And what more can I say? For time is too short for me to tell you about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets who by faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched raging fire, escaped the edge of the sword, gained strength after being weak, became mighty in battle, and put foreign armies to flight. Women who received their dead, they were raised to life again. Those are awesome things, aren't they? We would love to have a life of faith like that. But listen to what the author of Hebrews says next. He says, but some were tortured not accepting release so they might gain a better resurrection. Others experienced mockings, scourgings, as well as bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They died by the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins. That's a direct reference to the prophets Elijah, Elisha, and John the Baptist. And he said they were destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. Doesn't sound like the life of faith that we're often told comes with faith, does it? Sounds like a real struggle, but then he says this, and I love this. He says, the world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and on mountains, hiding in caves and holes in the ground. We're going to see this morning that story in a man named Elijah. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Kings. This is where we're going to be this morning, 1 Kings chapter 19. And I want to get you caught up to speed on the story of Elijah because there's a whole lot that that happens. His story begins in 1 Kings 17, but there's a lot of stuff that takes place uh, through Elijah in just two short chapters. Now, to get you caught up to speed, uh, the, the nation of Israel 600 years ago had come out of Uh, slavery in Egypt, and as they're walking out of the desert with Moses, God presents them with the Ten Commandments, and it's about 600 years since that time when they've been given the Ten Commandments. 
And we know, if you know the history of Israel, we know it didn't take long for them to start breaking those commandments. And they started worshiping other gods. They started having idols that they were worshiping. It's been about 50 years since the reign of King Solomon. In fact, in this time, after King Solomon, the nation of Israel is split between two kingdoms. It's no longer one. It's now two. You have the northern kingdom of Israel and you have the southern kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom of Israel has 10 tribes with it and Judah has... Um, has one tribe, Judah, plus some of the Levites and priests. So there's kind of two down there. But this is not a good time in the history of Israel. In fact, we read about their current king in 1 Kings 16.30, King Ahab. He was one of the worst kings ever. He says, Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. And if you know the kings of, of Israel before him, they were pretty bad dudes. They were not good guys. And it says that he was worse than them. All right? And his wife, who knows his wife's name? Anybody? Jezebel. All right? If you call a woman a Jezebel, that is not a compliment. That is a very bad thing. All right? So don't seek to be a Jezebel. All right? And so we know that this is not a good time. There are bad things happening. The prophets of God, those who stand for God, are being killed. There's a man who ends up taking a hundred prophets and he hides them in a cave, just like we read about in Hebrews 11. It's talking about this story. They were hidden in holes in the ground and in the cave. So God comes to Elijah, and Elijah's just kind of thrust on the scene. We, we get very little introduction and backstory about Elijah, but the first thing we see is that he goes to King Ahab, and he says, Ahab, God's had enough, and he says that there's going to be no rain except at my word. It's not going to rain. So this drought begins. For three and a half years, there's a drought. And God says, Elijah, I want you to arise and go to Cherith. And he he says, there's a little stream there. It's a wadi. It's a temporary stream. It's only flowing when there's rain flowing. He says, I want you to stay there. Water is going to be provided for you. And the ravens are going to bring you bread and meat. I don't know if I would eat meat and bread brought by ravens, right? Unless God told me to. So God tells him to. And so he's provided for miraculously. And then finally the wadi dries up and God says, I want you to rise and go to Zarephath. And he goes to Zarephath and there he meets a widow who says, you know what, he's he's hungry. He says, can I get a a slice of bread? She says, well, actually I only have a little bit of oil and a little bit of flour. I'm going to bake a cake for me and my son and then we're going to die because we got nothing left and the drought is that bad. And he says, I'll tell you what, you go make me a cake first and then you make one for yourself and for your son. And for a long period of time, about three years, the oil and flour do not run out, and that lady is able to provide for her son and for her family. But then the day comes that her son dies, and Elijah miraculously raises him back to life. God is working through him, and finally the day comes when God says, Elijah, it's time. I want you to arise and go to Mount Carmel. And there on Mount Carmel, Elijah meets with 450 prophets of the false god Baal. Baal was the god of thunder, the god of rain. All right, so think about, Elijah says it's not going to rain for three years, and there's no rain, proving that his god is stronger than the false god Baal. But on this mountain, he says, I'll tell you what, we're going to have one final showdown in front of all the people of Israel. 400 prophets against one. Not very good odds. He says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to build two altars, and you guys build one to your god, and I'll build one to my god, And you sacrifice on your altar, and we'll see whose God rains down fire. 
Whichever God answers and brings fire and consumes the sacrifice, that's the real God, and everybody in Israel can worship that. And so the prophets of Baal come, and they start building their, their altar, and they start sacrificing on their altar. They place the sacrifice on there, and they start calling out to Baal, and they're doing all this crazy stuff. They're cutting themselves, thinking it's going to get their God's attention. And I love Elijah. He's over there, and he's like, hey, shout louder. Maybe he can't hear you. Maybe he's on vacation. Uh, maybe maybe he's, he's in the bathroom, right? And it says that. Go back and read it. He's like, maybe he's relieving himself, right? He's, he's just, he's backed up a little bit. You know, he needs some more fiber in his diet, and he can't come right now. Shout louder. And he's taunting him, and finally at midday, he says, hey, that's enough. I've seen enough. So he tells the attendants there, he says, look, I want you to dig a trench around my altar. Go fill those buckets and pour it on the, on the sacrifice. So they fill the buckets and they pour it on the sacrifice. And he says, do it again. Do it again. Do it again until the trench is full and the, the wood and everything is soaked. And then Elijah steps forward and he says, um, I think we have the verses. I want to read this exactly. In chapter 18, Elijah steps forward and he says, at the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all of these things at your command. Answer me, Lord. Answer me so that these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. And boom, immediately fire falls from heaven. It consumes not just the sacrifice. It destroys the entire altar. The entire altar is consumed in all the waters. It says is licked up. There's nothing left. And Elijah looks at the people of Israel and he says, seize those 450 prophets of Baal, those false God prophets, and slaughter them. So all the prophets of Baal that were there that day are slaughtered. A major victory, wouldn't you say? A major victory. And then God comes to Elijah and he says, Elijah, it's, it's time for you to pray for rain. So Elijah, there on Mount Carmel, starts, gets down on his knees and he's praying. And he's got his attendant with him. He says, all right, God, it's time for me to pray for rain so that people will know that you are God and that you are the one who's done this. So he goes and he prays for rain. And he tells his attendant, go look towards the sea. Tell me what you, what you see. And his attendant says, I don't see anything. He's like, all right, pray. Pray again. Seven times he sends his attendant to look for rain. Finally, the attendant comes back and he says, I see a cloud, but it's like the size of a man's hand. This is nothing. And Elijah says, okay, that's it. He says, go tell Ahab he better get in his chariot and get back to his palace because there's a major storm coming, a downpour, a miraculous rain to prove that it was God who stopped the rain and it was God who sent the rain. And then this is what happens. Elijah outruns Ahab's chariot. Okay, think about that. You have a king who's got a chariot being pulled by horses, and Elijah is in the mountains, and he outruns the king's chariot. Something tells me that, number one, Elijah's probably a little bit younger than we usually picture him. Number two, that this was a miracle that God did through him, and he sends them ahead, and he meets with Ahab. Well, the next thing that we read in chapter 19, I just want to read it to you, because Ahab goes back, and he informs his wife Jezebel, 
who's the one who's really pushing this Baal worship. And it says, Ahab told Jezebel everything that Elijah had done, how he killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a message to Elijah saying, may the gods punish me and do so severely if I do not make your life like one of them by this time tomorrow. Now this is funny to me because Elijah had just proven that her God doesn't exist, yet she comes and swears that she's going to kill him by her false gods. And what do we see from Elijah? It says, then Elijah became afraid and immediately ran for his life. Elijah became afraid and immediately ran for his life. Verse 3 there, literally translated from the Hebrew, says Elijah saw. Elijah saw and ran for his life. What did he see? He saw his circumstances. He looks at his life's circumstances and he says, God, I know you've worked powerfully in the past, but right now I don't have faith to believe because my life's on the line. And he loses faith. He loses faith and it says he runs for his life. He comes to Beersheba, which is about 90 miles away. So he's run 18 miles to catch the king. Then he runs 90 miles more. And it says when he gets to Beersheba, uh, that belongs to Judah, he leaves his servant there. He separates himself from other believers and he goes alone. He says, but then he went on a day's journey into the wilderness. So he keeps running even more. He sat down under a broom tree and he prayed that he might die. He said, I've had enough, Lord. Take my life, for I am no better than my father's. Then he lay down and slept under the broom tree. Have you ever been there? You ever felt that way? Lord, Lord, just just take me home. I'm ready. I'm done. I'm tired of fighting this fight. I want you to know that you're not alone. You're not alone. He goes on. Uh, the story goes on and, and we read about God's miraculous provision for Elijah. And it says, suddenly an angel touched him and the angel said, get up and eat. And then he looked and there by his head was a loaf of bread baked over hot stones and a jug of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. God comes to him miraculously. Now the interesting thing about this word in Hebrew where it says touched, it's the same word that God uses when he says that God struck the Egyptians and so I, I, I can't say this for sure, but I kind of picture this angel coming over to Elijah, maybe the first time, and he, he just says, hey, Elijah, I got some food for you. But then he goes back to sleep, and the angel comes to him again. Same word. Same word. It says the angel touched Elijah. And I, maybe this is just me. Maybe it's because I'm so hard-headed, and I know sometimes God's had to touch me. But I kind of picture the angel like, come on, get, get up. Right? Come on, Elijah. Like, he's striking him. I don't know. That's just my own interpretation because I know sometimes God's got to strike me a little bit. Sometimes it's the gentle touch. Sometimes it's the striking. Uh, I don't know that for sure. But that's just kind of what I picture in my head that, you know, those times when we pull away from the Lord, we get a little bit dense and maybe we need a little bit more of a, a harsher touch. And, but the angel comes to Elijah and says, hey, get up and eat. You've got a long journey ahead of you and uh, you're not going to make it if you're not sustained. So God provides for him miraculously. God provides for him. And we see that Elijah goes even further. God sends him on a a little six-week sabbatical. He gets 40 days to walk 200 miles. It's about five miles a day. That's not too bad, right? So he sends him, and he ends up at Mount Horeb, which is where Moses initially got the Ten Commandments. And there on Mount Horeb, we read this. 40 days and 40 nights to the Mount to Horeb, the mountain of God, verse 9, it says, he entered a cave there and spent the night. 
Then the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here? I think from time to time, God asks us that question. What are you doing here? As we're facing discouragement, depression, all of these things, um, we know that previously Elijah had only gone where God had told him to go. God says, arise and go to Cherith. Arise and go to Zarephath. Arise and go to Carmel. And now Elijah finds him in a place that God has not directed him to go. And he finds himself in a cave. The interesting thing about this cave to me when I read this, what I see is that Elijah is seeking refuge. And his human nature says, hey, you can hide yourself, you can find refuge and be safe in this cave. When all the time what God is saying is, Elijah, I want you to seek me, hide in me and find refuge in me. So Elijah is here and he's in this dark place. So God asks him this question, what are you doing here? And it's designed to be a soul-searching question. Did he understand why he was there from his standpoint? Does, does Elijah understand why perhaps God has led him to this cave and allowed him to be there? Did he grasp what was happening? In the question, we have an illustration of the concept of the word of God reproving and exposing us to our failures. You ever have that moment where you read something or the Lord speak something to your heart, and he just exposes your failures to you. He exposes our false belief systems, and he exposes us to God's grace. Do you understand that he was there, that Elijah is there because of his false thinking and because of his wrong focus? Do you understand that although he'd been running from the Lord, it was God who had led him to this very place, this special place where God is going to instruct him and restore him? Now look at verse 10. Look at what we see here. Listen to Elijah's response. He says, I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, but the Israelites have abandoned your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed the prophets with the sword. And I alone am left, and they are looking for me to take my life. Now think about this. Elijah had just seen God literally rain down fire from heaven, proving that he is God alone. He had seen 450 false prophets destroyed by others who were now turning back to the Lord. And yet here he is, even in the midst of victory, feeling like a failure. You ever been there? I hope, I hope I'm not the only one who's ever been there. You experience in a victory, yet it feels like a failure. So Elijah has come and he hides himself in the cave. Fear and discouragement cause him only to see the negative. And he senses a failure in spite of being in love with the Lord. And here's the first thing that I want us to see this morning from this story. First thing I want us to understand is that nobody's perfect. I know that's a shock. I know you're surprised to hear that, but nobody's perfect. Think about who Elijah is. Other than Moses, Elijah is the top prophet in the Old Testament. He's the guy. In fact, even today... Uh, Jewish people who celebrate the Passover, they leave a chair empty for Elijah to come back. That's how important this man is. They're waiting for Elijah to come, even to this day. This is a major hero of the faith, yet we see this crisis that he's having. 
And we have to realize that nobody's perfect. Now, no pastor is perfect. No elder is perfect. No Sunday school teacher is perfect. Not even you are perfect. Can we just say that together? Say, I'm not perfect. One, two, three. I'm not perfect. Now say it like you actually believe it, right? I'm not perfect. You're not perfect. You don't have to be. God doesn't call you to be. That's the beauty of the gospel. Let me just say this. The beauty of the gospel is that you're not perfect. You're never going to be. And so God, who is perfect, died in your place so that you may not be perfect, but you are being perfected. You're not perfect. Stop trying to be. Let yourself off the hook. And I think this was one of the struggles for, for Elijah was that, that he felt like he was part of the solution. He felt like there was something in his power. So God has to bring him to the end of himself, bring him to a point where he's literally hiding in a cave for him to understand that it's not by his power that this spiritual revival is going to take place in Israel. It's only when he comes to the end of himself that God can properly deal with him. You can't fully rely on God if you see yourself, your strength, your power, your wisdom as part of the solution. It has to be complete dependence on God's strength, God's power, and God's wisdom. Now, this is really hard for me because I have the kind of personality that does this, and maybe I'm not the only one. I hope I'm not. But this is what I do to the Lord. God, I believe you can do this, but if you need my help, just ask. And pretty soon, I find myself operating in my own strength, my own power, my own wisdom, instead of resting in the Lord's. But God is gracious to us, and he comes and he restores us. We must rely on our Heavenly Father's perfect strength, wisdom, and understanding. The second thing I want us to see is that our strongest asset is also our most vulnerable. Your strongest asset is also your most vulnerable. When it comes to living the life of faith, what is our greatest asset? It's our our focus, our dependence, and our faith in and on God. And this is exactly where Satan attacks us. He will do whatever he can to pull your focus, to pull your attention, to pull your dependence and your faith from the Lord. And he does this a number of ways. And he often uses the relationships that ought to be the the most God-honoring to do that. How many of you have, have ever seen a great victory for the Lord and all of a sudden you find that you're starting to fight with your spouse? Anybody besides me? Okay, good. All right. How many of you have ever seen a great victory in the Lord and then something happens and he's provided for you miraculously and then you lose your job and you wonder, oh great, how am I going to provide for my family now? As if the job was what was providing for you instead of the Lord. Satan does this. John 10.10, we read this. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. But I've come that you may have life and have it to the full. Now, I don't know how many of you are history nerds like I am, but if you know much about history, which is usually revolving around wars and battles, one of the reasons why most generals are successful is because they know their strengths, they know their weaknesses, but they also have an insight into the tactics of the enemy. And they know how the enemy is going to respond. Here, Jesus gives us an insight into the tactics of the enemy. 
What does he say? He comes to steal, kill, and destroy. One of my good friends, John Cain, had the privilege of serving with him on staff at a church for five years. He's a, a counselor, and he would always say this. Satan comes to steal our joy, kill the relationships we should be having, and destroy our trust in God. You might want to write that down. Satan comes to steal our joy, kill the relationships we should be having, and destroy our trust in God. And what do we So we see that Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He's stolen Elijah's joy. He's killed the relationships he should be having, and he's destroyed his trust in God. And the enemy wants to do the exact same things to us. So we have to recognize that our strongest asset is also our most vulnerable. Uh, What I love is that God is merciful towards Elijah. He doesn't lecture or punish him, but he comes to him in a very, very gentle way. Let's look at um, 1 Kings 19, verse 11. Then he, being God, said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the Lord's presence. At that moment, the Lord passed by. The great and mighty wind was tearing at the mountains and there was a shatter- and, and was shattering cliffs before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After was a, uh, the earthquake was fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire was a voice, a soft whisper. Elijah heard it. He wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. God comes to Elijah and he reveals himself. He reveals his power through Mother Nature. And he says, hey, look, these are the powerful things that I can do. This is the strength of my power. But God was not a part of any of those. God was not in any of those. Earthquake, wind, fire. God was not a part of any of those. Yet God comes to him in a still, small voice. Now, the text doesn't tell us exactly what God was doing here. But here's what I think. I think Elijah is at a low point in his life. Here is this powerful prophet who, even after this, he's going to go on and do powerful demonstrations of God's uh, greatness for the country. In Elijah's mindset, he's thinking that, hey, this is how the, this is how the spiritual revival in Israel is going to take place. It's going to be through these powerful miracle, miracles that God is going to do. But I think what God is saying to Elijah is, hey, This battle against Baal and this idol worship, yes, there are some powerful warfare things that need to take place. But the real change, the real power is going to come through the still small voice of the Holy Spirit speaking to people's hearts and changing their lives. That is the real powerful miracle that's going to take place. So God comes to him in this still small voice. And it's amazing to me that it's twice that God asks Elijah this question. He says, what are you doing here? What are you doing here, Elijah? And twice, Elijah responds the same way. And it's only after he, he hears this still small voice that God then comes to him and, and restores him. And when I think about this still small voice, I think about Psalm 46.10, where the psalmist says, Be still and know that I am God. I think this is why God brings Elijah to this place. Because he's saying this. 
and I've heard this before, I often have to remind myself there is a God, and I'm not Him. There is a God, and I'm not Him. Can I get an amen for that? How many times do we try to pretend like we are God, as if we are in control, as if what happens depends on us? And I think God is coming to Elijah, and he's saying, be still and know that I, not you, but I am God. Let me do it. Let me show you how it's going to work. And so he comes, and he encourages, and he restores Elijah. In the following verses, we're going to see that God's going to restore Elijah, and he's going to recommission them. He calls Elijah to go and anoint three men who would later complete the purge. You see, that still small voice that was, that was speaking to Elijah, the still small voice, the true agent of change, the Holy Spirit that was going to speak into the lives of the people of Israel was going to take 40 years to bring about the change that God desired. It would be 40 years before Baalism is completely wiped out. So God says, just be patient, Elijah. And by the way, Elijah, you're not alone. There are 7,000 left in Israel who have not bowed the knee to this false prophet. Elijah is restored, reconnected to community. And then we see that God, God encourages him further. He says, you know what? I'm also going to give you Elisha. Elisha is going to walk with you. He's going to become your protege. He's going to be by your side. And we see at the end of Elijah's story, before he's called up into the whirlwind, that Elisha won't even leave his side. Elisha knows that he's going, but he says, no, I'm going to be here. I'm going to stick with you to the end. Until God takes you to the earth, from the earth, I'm with you to the end. So God meets all of his needs. We see this, that even when I am faith, faithless, God is faithful. Even when I am faithless, God is faithful. Elijah is vulnerable. Jezebel only had to shake her finger, and the prophet ran for his life. And notice that God doesn't stop him. In fact, God supports him with food and water so that the journey would not be too costly for him. And it's not strange that a person who puts great spiritual exertion towards something would collapse afterwards. We would be surprised if he hadn't. Now, I don't know about you, but any time you do something great, for me, even preaching on Sunday morning, I, let me say this, I love it. I get excited. I get jacked up. I'm ready to go. I'm up at 4.30, and I just can't wait to be up here to share the word of the Lord and to talk about it. But by 2 o'clock in the afternoon, I am flat on my back laying down because I'm just exhausted. God does great things, but it's exhausting when you're fighting battles, when you're praying for other people. And God knows this, and so he provides for Elijah. He doesn't leave him. He says, Elijah, I'm going to take care of you. Even in those moments when you can't trust me, I'm still going to take care of you. And it's beautiful to see how God provides him for him in a number of different ways. God gave him time to recover, and he says, you know what? In due time, Jezebel's going to be dealt with. And you can go on and read the story and see how God deals with her. I find myself asking this question this, this last week. How did Elijah get here? And there are some things that I see in this that um, I, I learned a lot when I was on sabbatical earlier this summer for six weeks. Um, God didn't make me walk, walk 200 miles through the mountains for six weeks, but I did get a time um, to be with him. Thank you for that, church. And some of the things that I see in this that, that I learned about were, number one, I think it's safe to say that Elijah was, was mentally drained. You think about three and a half years of the tension that he was going through during that time when he was praying that it wouldn't rain. 
And it, it all culminates then at the great confrontation at Mount Carmel. So I think he's mentally drained. I think he's also physically exhausted. Let's review. Um, he runs 18 miles to outrun a chariot. He then runs another 90 miles to Beersheba, leaves his servant, and then goes another day into the wilderness. And then God says, by the way, I'm going to send you on a 200-mile walk. Is it safe to say that Elijah's physically drained? Yeah? Physically exhausted? Last, I think he's spiritually fatigued. Verse 3, again of chapter 19, says Elijah saw. Literally, Elijah saw. And it reminds me of Matthew 14, when it says that, Peter, who's walking on the water, Peter saw the waves and he began to sink. What happened? Peter took his focus off the Lord and he begins to sink. What happened to Elijah? He took his focus off the Lord and he begins to sink spiritually. It happens to all of us. It can happen to all of us. And there's one more thing that I think all three of these are related. I think the mental affects the physical and it affects the spiritual. I think the spiritual affects the mental, it affects the spiritual, and the spiritual affects the mental and affects the physical. They're all connected, and it leads to something even worse for Elijah. It leads to relational, being relationally isolated. He separates himself. He separates himself from those who had started to turn to the Lord, and then he separates himself from his fellow believer, his attendant who was serving him. But look at what God does through this story. We see that Elisha gets renewed mentally and physically. He gets mental and physical restoration in verses 5 through 7. God says, sends the angel and says, here's food and water. Take some rest. Hey, take, take a, a casual stroll to Mount Horeb. You've got 40 days to get there. Walk through the mountains. Be out in nature. I don't know about you guys, but when I'm, when I'm feeling down, one of the best things I can do is spend time outside. I encourage you, you ought to do some research on how sunlight, 20 minutes a day, can affect your body, right? It's almost as if God knew what he was doing when he created the sun in our bodies. That sunlight would affect our bodies. It allows us to have better sleep. It allows us to have uh, more of the hormones like dopamine and melatonin. I won't go into that. Do, do your own research. It's interesting. And then lastly, we see that God gives him spiritual revival. He gives him spiritual revival. He appears to him personally, speaks to him, says, Elijah, what are you doing here? Speaks to him in a still small voice. And then finally, he reconnects him relationally. He allows him to get reconnected relationally. God reminds him of the 7,000. And then he says, by the way, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you someone who's never going to leave your side in Elisha. And it's interesting that as I thought about these things, they reminded me of, of what I learned on my sabbatical about Sabbath. Sabbath, when I was growing up, just meant that you couldn't go out to eat because then you were causing someone else to work. Uh, And I learned that's not what Sabbath is. That's not what Sabbath is. Sabbath is meant to be a day of mental, physical, spiritual, and relational renewal, reconnection, and refreshment. So I just want to give you something practical to think about this week. How did Elijah get here? Well, he was missing all of these things. He was weak in all of these things. So I want to encourage you um, to think about regular, ti- regular times of Sabbath as a way to, to do this. And I know some of you, your mind is auto- automatically going, well, there's no way that I can fit into my schedule an entire day of, of just nothing. It just doesn't fit. And let me say this. Let's trace from the fruit to the root. The fruit is I can't take a Sabbath. But what's the root belief that's really 
leading us to that mindset. The root belief is, if I can't stop one day a week, it's not a scheduling problem, it's a heart problem. Can we just admit that? If I can't stop and rest in the Lord one day a week, it's not a scheduling problem, it's a heart problem. Basically, what we're saying is that, God, if I take a day off, I don't trust that you're going to accomplish all the other work that I'm supposed to do, because it all depends on me, right? So it's a lack of faith in the Lord. God can't possibly do it all without me. I love this quote from Louis Giglio. Louis Giglio says this in his book, I am not, but I know I am. He says, Sabbath is not so much about a day off as it is a day up, a day to remember that he is God and we are not. Without Sabbath, we forget who we are and lose sight of who he is, leaving us to carry the weight of the world on our shoulders. When there is no Sabbath in our lives, we become intoxicated by the lie that the sum of our lives depends on our efforts alone. We get to the place where we truly believe that the outcome of the story fully depends on us. Our biggest and best efforts still accomplish far less than what God can do through us or without us in one breath. Did you catch that? Did you catch that? God can do way more than we can do. And when we fail to take this time, we end up where Elijah is. We become intoxicated by the lie that the sum of our lives depends on our efforts alone. I think that's where Elijah is. He felt like, God, I'm the only one left. I'm the only one who can accomplish this, and it's not happening. So just take me home. I want to encourage you this morning, just, just in a practical way, to go home and think about what does it look like for me to take a regular time of rest every week, every week, just to have that refreshing and renewal. I want us to close by thinking about where we started. What are you doing here? What are you doing here? You know, if it weren't for this story in 1 Kings 19, I think we would be tempted to think that Elijah was, was more than any ordinary man, and certainly he had great faith, but I love that we read this in James chapter 5. James chapter 5 verse 17 says this, Elijah was a human being even as we are. Let's read that together. Elijah was a human being. What's it say? even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. So think about this. If we didn't have this story in 1 Kings 19, I think it'd be easy to believe that Elijah was not like us. Yet here we have the encouragement that he was a human being. Why? Not because of his great faith, but because of his weakness and God's faithfulness to him, even in the midst of his weakness. I hope that you're encouraged this morning by, by Elijah's story. That nobody's perfect. God doesn't call you to be perfect. He doesn't expect you to be perfect. But he wants you to be perfected in him, to rest in him. I hope you're encouraged by the reality, by knowing that you are going to be attacked. The enemy will attack you. But where he attacks is also your greatest strength. And you can shore that up by surrounding yourself with other people who will encourage you. And I also hope that you're encouraged by the reality that even when we are faithless, God is faithful. Even when we are faithless, God is faithful. He doesn't leave Elijah. He doesn't rebuke him. He encourages him. He provides for him. This morning, I want to encourage you with this, that all the things that Elijah needed, 
are a part of what we call the discipleship process. A disciple is someone who knows and follows Jesus, who is being changed by Jesus, and is living on mission with Jesus. And that, that takes being surrounded by a community of believers who are walking that same walk with you. And the beautiful thing about River Rock is we are passionate about discipleship, and we are passionate about the relationships in which that takes place. So I want to encourage you this morning, if you're, if you're finding yourself like Elijah, you're hiding in a cave, and, and you may be hiding for a different reason, but you're hiding. You're feeling alone. You're feeling despair. You're feeling depressed. I want to encourage you that you're not alone, and there are others who want to walk that journey with you, and they want to be there to encourage you on that journey, to point you back to the Lord, to help strengthen you, to remind you of the great things that God has done in and through you. So if that's you this morning, you feel there, you're feeling alone, I want to encourage you to look at the back of your connection card, check the box for community groups, because community groups is the start of the discipleship process, and it's a great place to begin just being in relationship with other people who will walk with you and encourage you in your relationship with the Lord. As we finish this morning, I hope you'll leave and ask yourself this question this week. What am I doing here? What am I doing here? Would you take maybe 20 minutes this afternoon, just get before the Lord and say, Lord, what am I doing here? What's the area of your life where you're struggling? Where God would come to you and say, hey, this area of your life, I need to ask you, what are you doing here? I've got more for you. Let's come out of the cave. Let's get to work. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your message through the life of Elijah. God, that we are not perfect. Even those who are strong in their faith will have moments where we fail, where we fail to trust you, where we fail to see what you're doing. And we thank you that you, God, are faithful, even when we are faithless. That you love us enough that you don't just throw us away. You restore us. You renew us. You surround us with others who can walk that journey with us. Lord, we pray that you would be with us as we go throughout this week. May we have not just one day, but may we have Sabbath moments where we stop and listen for your voice and rest in you completely. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.